we are not just going to meet the recommendations of climate scientists by moving to 100% renewable energy for electricity and transportation by 2030 and decarbonizing our economy by 2050. We are also going to create some 20 million new good-paying jobs. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Klein. And on today's episode, we will be discussing the Green New Deal and critiquing the Green New Deal, uh, specifically the recent Green New Deal proposal put out by Bernie Sanders. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, read more about the issues we discuss, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. And please also consider making a donation on the website there. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the positions and views of Marxist Humanist Initiative. In just a moment, we will commence the main segment of our podcast discussing the Green New Deal. But first, we're going to take a moment to discuss some current events. Today in the current events section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about a piece by Paul Heidemann in Jacobin Magazine entitled, What Liberals Miss About Trump Country. The blurb summarizes the piece saying, liberal pundits look at Trump voters and see a monolithic mass of reactionary resentment, but class matters. Poor Republicans actually tend to hold progressive views on the economy. Heidemann goes on to argue that liberal pundits have a unrealistic picture of the Trump base as monolithically reactionary, but actually that in reality, um, poor Republicans tend to have more progressive views on supporting social programs that might reduce inequality and other sorts of social programs. You know, when I first read this piece, my takeaway is that Heidemann is putting forth the kind of argument you often might see in Jacobin that by uh, appealing to Trump voters with social democratic programs, uh, we might actually peel off some Trump voters and win the election in 2020. Oh, gee, nobody in Jacobin would ever say such a crazy thing like that, would they? <laughs> right. So you could see how, because I this is sort of the party line often in Jacobin, I, I assumed that was what the argument was making. But after we briefly talked about it, you pointed out that he actually doesn't come out and make that argument. Right. There is a lot less to this piece than meets the eye. Yeah, so we talked about it briefly. You sort of pointed out to me that, that he doesn't actually make that argument explicitly. So what exactly is he saying? Well, he says a number of things. Uh, first of all, he bashes the liberal pundits uh, without without mentioning that he's also bashing the, the social science research on which the punditry relies. Um, and... The, the, the bashing is basically the uh, supposed attempt that they make to portray uh, Republicans and Trump voters as a monolith, uh, you know, an impenetrable block. So that gets to the, the issue that you're uh, getting at. You know, he says, oh, they portray them as an impenetrable block. He doesn't quite say, though, they're not really an impenetrable block, but there are continual suggestions in that. Um, direction um and he makes a lot of in my view way too much of the fact that there are differences according to income level between uh, republican voters essentially republican voters in other words lower income republican voters have different less reactionary uh economic policy views on the whole than more well-to-do uh republican voters uh, that's the, um, the the fact underlying what he describes in, I, I believe, excessive ter- terms. I, I wrote down some of the, the, the adjectives that he uses to describe this difference in economic policy views within the set of Republican voters. Contradictions, fractures, it's fractious. Uh, they're deeply divided. Uh, there are schisms, fissures, fault lines, chasms. That that's a that's a bit much when when all all we're, we're seeing is a difference in policy views without any real indication that these differences in policy views are driving anything. They they might be there and and not that important uh, in terms of let's say voting behavior. They might be there 
and important to voting behavior as a side effect or consequence of, of other things. Right. Well, when you watch a Trump rally, it seems that there's no internal division at all within the Trump base. It's like a cult of personality, and either you're with Trump or you're not with Trump, and other in issues don't really matter at all. Right. Um, and in, in this piece by Heidemann, um, he disregards what I believe the key point is that he's pointing to, which is the following. He's, uh, fairly late in the piece, he writes, uh, he's uh, characterizing a certain study, um, talking about, uh, well, I'll just read it. He says, while Democrats differ between rich and poor on social issues and are united on economics, Republicans are united on social issues and divided on economics with poor Republicans endorsing significantly more progressive economic policies than rich Republicans. Okay, so what this suggests to me is that what is holding the Trumpite base and holding the Republicans together is unity on social issues, and that trumps differences with respect to economic matters. Okay, so it, it, it's right there. Despite these differences on economic matters, they are united. And on, on what basis are they united? Social issues. So it, it's right there in this piece if one chooses to uh, pay attention to it. Right. And, and it seems ridiculous to assert that just because some Republicans might support, say, Social Security or Medicare, that that means they're going to be receptive to someone like Bernie Sanders, who is portrayed as a radical socialist. In general, you know, your Republican voters, uh, your so-called, you know, Republican white working class voters and so forth, they're, they're, they're not in favor of uh, welfare policies. Um, okay, but there is very strong support among them for Social Security and Medicare. Uh, in fact, more than in the general population. Okay, so the, the, they make it. They make a difference, and the difference comes down to what is, in their view, assistance to those who are deserving versus assistance to those who are not deserving. And a good deal of the hatred of the political class, the elites, has to do with this idea that. You know, these elites are getting their power by um, sucking up to, you know, and, and, and doing the bidding of those who are not deserving. And, of course, that has a tremendous amount of racial baggage going along with it. And, you know, immigrants coming in and, and supposedly living high on the hog and all, all, all of that. Um, and it's, it's not just, you know, answers to survey questions. Uh, the, a sociologist, Arlie uh, Russell Hochschild, wrote a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, you know, based on very deep research. You know, she was in Louisiana and she finally said, look, here, I'll tell you a story, you know, about what I think you're saying. And it was like people cutting in line. You know, we've waited in line for ours. We're not getting it. And here we see these people cutting in line and we don't like it. And they go, yeah, this is what we're saying. So there, 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 there are differences that are very pronounced, um, which are based on this notion of deservingness and not. And, and that's very, very much tied to, to, to race. Andrew, you wrote a book review called The Baselessness of Trump's Base, which is up on the MHI website. And it's a book review of the book called Identity Crisis by John Sides, Lynn Vavrick, and Michael Tesler. And you talk about an experiment they do that kind of illustrates this concept. This was done in, this experiment was done in December uh, 2016, so a month after the election. Um, Half of the respondents, I'm quoting from the book, half of the respondents were asked whether they agreed or disagreed with a racially loaded statement. The statement is over the past few years, blacks have gotten less than they, less than they deserve. The other half was given the same statement, except that instead of blacks, it said average Americans. Okay, and that, uh, they say, average Americans uh, has been shown by research to be implicitly synonymous, when people hear it, with being white. Um, Almost two-thirds of Trump voters said that average Americans were not getting what they deserve, but only 12% said this about blacks. 
among Clinton voters, there was no such disparity. You know, almost two-thirds, 60-something percent versus 12 percent of Trump voters saying blacks are not getting what they deserve. They don't agree that blacks are not getting what they deserve, but they're saying to almost two-thirds of them, average Americans are not getting what they deserve. Among Clinton voters, the share who say average Americans and blacks not getting what they deserve, pretty similar amounts. So there really is... Um, a very strong racialized element to this notion of deservingness, uh, and this is this is the, the terms in which a lot of people think. Um, but but I want to make a comment on 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 another um, point. We, we've made it, but but I, w- I want to make sure that this this gets through. Um, in the in the last section of uh, Heidemann's uh, article. Um, he says the homogenization of rural white America in the portraits of liberal observers obscures all of this. Instead, readers are told again and again that nothing can shake Trump voters' faith in him, that racism and xenophobia drive everything about their politics, and that they will happily deprive themselves of opportunity if it means they can deprive others as well. What one is expecting is that he will present some argument, some evidence that it's not that way. Okay, but but there isn't there isn't a bit of that in this entire article. Okay, what is the evi- What is the evidence? What is the evidence that that something, especially some economic policy stuff, can shake Trump voters' faith in him? What what, what is the evidence that their politics is not driven by racism and, and xenophobia? Uh, what what, 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 where is the evidence that the deprivation of others is not key to, 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 what, to what they're about? Okay, He doesn't present any of that. Well, it seems like Jacobin's in a hard place because they've been pushing this line that social democratic politics are going to um, defeat the Republicans, but the social science research seems to be pretty consistent in countering uh, that. And so they've sort of been left with this approach. This this article really represents the swan song of this, you know, economic distress uh, brought about by neoliberalism pummeling the working class is what uh, caused Trump to become president. Uh, you know, that narrative has taken blow after blow, um, both because of the social science research that's been done to show what the motivations of Trump voters are, and because, um, you know, you see Trump voters are certainly not getting any economic benefits from this administration, uh, and yet his base sticks with him through thick and thin. Th- that narrative is in tatters, and and this is, is, is what one can salvage. This article gives you what you can salvage uh, without actually lying. Um, and it, it, you know it looks good, and it, it it can induce this idea that oh yeah you know if the, the the Democratic Party were to move into you know a strong social democratic direction, it could pull a substantial at least substantial part of Trump's base away from him. You know you get that impression. Every everything seems to be driving you to m- draw those inferences. But, but to his credit, the, the author does not go there. He, he does not actually say that. The question is, what is he saying in the end? I'm Andrew Kleiman, uh, and today I'll be interviewing Brendan, Brendan Cooney, co-host, on his recent analysis and critique of the Green New Deal. Uh, He's spoken about this in a presentation at this year's Left Forum conference, uh, I think it was the end of June, uh, and he entitled his presentation, More Green, Less New Deal. Uh, He spoke about the same subject at the Jacobin Historical Materialism Conference also this year, earlier than that. Uh, You can watch the video recordings of his presentations in With Sober Senses, Marxist Humanist Initiative's web journal, and the URLs are given in this episode's podcast page. And Brendan's analysis and critique of the Green New Deal is based on, and is a concretization of, his 2017 essay, which he entitled Against Left Economic Populism. Uh, And that also appeared in With Sober Senses. Uh, And that essay of his later became the basis 
of one of the sections of MHI's Marxist Humanist Initiative Perspectives document, uh, which is entitled Resisting Trumpist Reaction and Left Accommodation. Uh, this episode's podcast page also gives the URLs to these documents. Uh, and Brendan's overall take on left economic populism, on which the new uh, the Green New Deal stuff is, is based, uh, that will be one of the issues I'll be discussing with him today, his overall take. So, Brendan, let me begin with this term, Green New Deal. Um, we seem to have gone from zero to 60 in about five seconds. One never heard of the Green New Deal, never heard anything about it, then the term was everywhere. Uh, and one result of this, I think, is that even though the term is now very familiar to most of us, uh, not many of us are confident that we really know what the Green New Deal is. What is it? Can you provide a definition so that we can begin by at least knowing what we're talking about exactly? Yeah, I can provide a definition, although we should probably point out that the fact that the Green New Deal exists more as like a slogan and some loose aspirations rather than clear and concrete claims is maybe emblematic of some of the problems within it. And this lack of concreteness has obviously led to a lot of gross mischaracterizations from the right, but also some pretty loose and sloppy thinking and some kind of frivolous claims, I think from Green New Deal advocates themselves. Definition of the Green New Deal, I would say that the Green New Deal refers to the idea that climate change can be fought against by an enlightened social democratic state that simultaneously fights climate change and inequality. And it pairs the rebuilding of our energy and transportation sectors, you know, rebuilding them to replace fossil fuels with renewable resources, uh, pairs that project with job guarantee programs. Um, often with a claim to eliminate un unemployment altogether. Green New Deal advocates call for unusually large amounts of state spending to both save the climate and eliminate inequality, while also claiming that the Green New Deal will be good for the economy, where they always promise positive economic outcomes. Uh, and many claim that this spending will pay for itself. At the center of the Green New Deal is this assumption that battling climate change and inequality are intrinsically connected and that a reboot of the New Deal will solve both problems. Okay, that's that's helpful. Um, and I want to talk to you about that, uh, whether there's some intrinsic um, flow between those two aspects, between the, the environmentalism and the social democratic spending, or whether it's just like jammed together without any real uh, tie between the two. But before we, we, we get to the, the economics of it, I want to go uh, into the green aspect. Um, you entitled your presentation, More Green, Less New Deal. And this idea of more green in your title, it seems to me there's two possible meanings. One possible meaning is that you'd like to see more emphasis on the green aspects of the Green New Deal and less emphasis on the New Deal aspects. Okay, but there's another possible meaning, which is that the Green New Deal as a whole is in some sense inadequate because it's not green enough. It doesn't do enough to uh, address the environmental crisis. So my question is, which of these meanings, or maybe another one, what did you intend? Well, I intend, I think, closer to that second definition in the sense that um, it's not adequately green. But I don't mean that in the sense that the technical changes demanded by Green New Deal uh, proponents are inadequate. For instance, if you look at, say, Bernie Sanders' uh, proposal that he came out with a few weeks ago, I mean, the proposal was not lacking in the um, technical and scientific demands it makes in terms of how we need to transform our, our energy infrastructure and transportation infrastructure and aspects like that. You know, in general, when it comes to like science and technology, the Green New Deal people are, you know, pro-science and pro-truth and, and, and have a lot of positive ideas. Um, but the real f tragic flaw comes in the fact that this, um, these demands are attached to this economic populism, which is um, full of half-truths and, and logical problems and endangers the long-term viability of the, the green part of the project. If averting climate change is tied to the political promise that in so doing, we are creating a new golden era of capitalism in which all the social contradictions of capitalism have been managed and eliminated through a benevolent state 
and these enlightened social democratic politicians, um, then we are endangering the long-term transformation of the economy um, by this promise. Because if these populist promises don't work out, if you can't create 20 million new jobs without creating a recession or inflation or something, um, then the people that bought into this project because of these promises are not going to be willing to still politically sustain um, their commitment to this transformation. And we know that obviously transforming our energy infrastructure and our consumption habits and whatnot is going to be a long-term project. And I think people need to be invested in that project on its own terms, on the terms of fighting climate change, rather than on the terms of economic populism. Especially because we can see how quickly one president, like Donald Trump, can very easily walk back on uh, years of progress and climate policy. Obviously, there was a lot of inadequacies about Obama-era climate regulations, but Donald Trump, within a few short months or years, was able to completely change course on uh, many, many fronts. And that could easily happen again uh, with a Green New Deal, where people become disillusioned, there isn't the economic miracle that was promised, and they elect some asshole like Donald Trump who walks everything backwards. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm getting at with this title, More Green, Less New Deal. I think it's a setup, and it's a setup for the environmental uh, movement to, to fail eventually. Right. And what I, th I think I hear you saying is that the danger uh, consists in the social democratic aspects of this being promised and not being able to be realized. Yes. It won't be achievable. And at that point, the people who have become mobilized, you know, are green people. They, they, they want the, a solution to the climate crisis. When the, when the promises don't pan out, they're going to turn off. Okay. Yeah. And that then gives a green light that's bad uh, color uh it, it gives it, it gives some sort of signal to people like trump and, and and so forth that they can come in and roll things back and reverse everything yeah because there are going to be other political options on the table besides just the social democratic one uh they're going to be all sorts of authoritarian and militaristic responses to the global instabilities of climate change and people could be attracted to those as well if they feel like they might gain some degree of safety for themselves i hear you okay um i want to come back to that at, at the beginning of your presentation or near the, the beginning uh you you have another um i think broader critique of economic populism and i want to get some clarity with regard to that you, you say that the green new deal is saturated in economic populism a form of politics that takes the standpoint of capital. Well, first of all, what is it that you mean by the standpoint of capital, and what does it mean to take its standpoint, take the standpoint of capital? The environmental movement has been condemned to an endless gradualism for decades, uh, brought on by this pressure to do everything within the framework of a capitalist society. So, you know, you can't be against logging because that's bad for the jobs of loggers and um, uh, you have to if you want solar power and wind power to be uh, widely used well you have to do it through the market by waiting for them to become more profitable than fossil fuels and so on it's a type of gradualism that has just marched us to the brink of destruction so we know that that type of uh, politics and that type of standpoint is a dead end um, the green new deal seems at first to be different because it involves planning right and everything's going to be done at once, so it doesn't feel gradual anymore. But if you look at the promises being made by the Green New Deal people, they're all really ambitious promises about the ability of these enlightened leaders to make capitalism this rosy paradise, where the economy is strong, where, where everyone has jobs, uh, where the market functions smoothly. So it's all still framed within this perspective that these reforms must work within the framework of a capitalist society. Uh, so when I'm talking about the standpoint of capital, I, I'm talking about this idea that things aren't worth pursuing unless they fit within the rules of capitalism. Uh, and we know that capitalism, at, at its most fundamental core, prioritizes profit over human needs and profit over the environment. 
So this is a really contradictory and problematic orientation to take. Look, ultimately, capitalism has led us to this yeah. environmental destruction. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's not a socially conscious mode of pr production and a social system based on it. It's about, you know, getting the most profit. So it, it's not even hard to understand why it would lead to such environmental disasters as we're, as we're seeing in, in, down the road. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, we, we you know, we, we look at this, mm -hmm. we say, this can be solved, but it's not going to be able to be solved within the framework of capitalist society where, you know, no, you don't care about the sustainability of life on this planet. What you care about is profit and accumulation and, 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 and all of that stuff. So I don't know. How would you respond to, to that? What, what are your thoughts on what I was just getting at with regard to um, maybe this, the standpoint of capital is, is just thinking that we have to solve these problems within the capitalist environment um, another bad word choice when in fact that that that's not going to be feasible in the end and that we have to think beyond that yeah i mean environmental movements are going to have to start thinking beyond capitalism if we're really going to get through this i i assume at the same time you know i think there was probably a time in my life where i th probably would have said well we can't solve the ecological issue within capitalist society so you know let's just fight for socialism now and then we can deal with the environment after we have socialism or something like that. And I think that's that's a little too simplistic and it also isn't realistic anymore. We don't have this sort of that sort of timeline. We're operating on a timeline where we have like maybe 10 years if we're lucky before things are irreversible on this planet. Um, so I think right now it's the question about what kind of politics we are pursuing and what kind of language, language we use and, and what kind of promises we're making. And environmental demands um, should have the expectation that they'll achieve environmental results, not that they are going to be part of some program to reform capitalism and somehow make uh, this brutal social system more humane. It makes a lot of sense to me because, to me, socialism, you know, the new society, it's not a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's about a way of life that's conducive to human flourishing. And it, it, we can only have that if we have a sustainable uh, environment and, and, and move beyond the, the, the climate crisis. So the idea of first, first we have socialism, then we solve the climate crisis. It, it, it doesn't even make sense mm -hmm. to me. It seems to be really when, we, when people would, well, if they talk like that, what they're really saying is capture political power. But right. I, I don't think that, uh, you know, a, a group of people who capture political power are going to provide any solution to anything because it's not the bad motives of the people in power that are the, the cause of this. It's the profit orientation and the accumulation orientation of capitalist society mm -hmm. that's the root of all of the problems here are general problems and our environmental problems. And unless people have a solution to that, okay, which has to be green, okay, it's got to be socialist and it's got to be green. And they're one and the same thing, really. Unless they have a solution to that, their political power is, is, is at best meaningless. <laughs> also say that this economic populism that underlies the Green New Deal is a direct threat to the fight against climate change. When I heard you say that, it wasn't quite clear to me what you were referring to, but is it the thing that you were talking about uh, a few moments ago, about people becoming disillusioned? When the yeah, in the, in the sense that the whole project seems set up for failure and disillusionment. But I also mean that it makes the project even harder to start in the first place. I mean, if you took say for instance bernie sanders new green new deal plan and you stripped all of the economic populist elements out of it all the job guarantees and the we're going to spend this and this and this and you just stripped it down to a green infrastructure and green energy plan the plan would be significantly cheaper and significantly more uh politically and uh, and economically attainable if you then took away all of the other sort of economic populist promises that Bernie Sanders has also put forward, like the, the affordable housing plan and single-payer health care and the free college tuition, you took those things out as well, we'd have a lot more resources and political capital to expend on fighting climate change and figuring out how we're going to avert 
like uh, a serious worldwide disaster over the next 10 years. And honestly, I think there's a fair amount of opportunism going on with the Green New Deal stuff because obviously there's a big global emergency and a lot of people want to do something about it urgently. So it's a great opportunity to sort of hitch on your own agenda onto this other thing and to slip in your your own social democratic agenda uh, through the back door and like I kind of ride the coattails of this environmental movement. And so I think that's a threat to the fight against climate change too, because we just don't have time for opportunism. We need to be dealing with very concrete demands about how to eliminate our dependence on fossil fuels and rebuild our infrastructure around green technologies. We don't have time to be debating whether a job guarantee program is healthy for capitalism or not. Um, we need to deal with these immediate pressing concrete concerns. And then I think, you know, we need to also talk about some basic political demands for the era of climate change, like demands to protect the rights of climate refugees, curtailing authoritarian powers and sentiments in society, and of course, all these geopolitical issues that are going to become uh, front and center once some countries start transforming their infrastructures faster than others. You say that the way that the Green New Deal is presented uh, is too rosy. It's overly optimistic. There's a vision that um, it's either a vision uh, that will have a great future if the Green New Deal is implemented, or perhaps it's an overly optimistic vision of how we can fight and win the fight against the, the climate crisis. First of all, can you clarify what exactly you think is overly optimistic? Uh, and also, why do you think that the vision that they put forward is too rosy? You know, what, what, is, uh, what, is, what exactly is too optimistic about it? I think it's overly optimistic to assume that these enlightened social democratic leaders We'll just be able to create this rosy paradise on earth that will pay for itself. I think it rests on the false assumption that the social ills of capitalist society are the result of unenlightened or ill-intentioned leaders. And so if we just had better leaders with better ideas and better intentions, all the social ills of capitalist society would just melt away. You know, they never state it explicitly, but I think it's implied and it's meant to um, appeal to this false, this, this myth in our society that the New Deal created the economic boom of the 50s and 60s. There was this golden era of capitalism that we could just recapture if we could get back to the politics of the New Deal. You know, rid our mind of neoliberal thinking and start thinking like Keynesians again. And all of a sudden we're going to be able to replicate the economic conditions of the post-World War II Western economies. I think most economic historians would not credit the New Deal with having created the post-war economic boom, uh, but it's a sort of a myth that continues to exist uh, in the left. It's more likely that it was the massive uh, capital destruction that happened during the war that paved the way for the economic expansion after World War II. It's also quite possible that that era of, of rising wages and uh, this emergent middle class and state spending uh, enabled by this robust economic expansion, it's also possible that period was just a very small and momentary blip on the long arc of capital's history, sort of in an irregularity that can't just be recreated by fiat. And that's mostly what I'm referring to when I'm talking about this overly optimistic and rosy picture. Obviously, capitalist states can tax and spend money and they can go into debt, but there are real limitations to the ability of capitalist states to just create economic conditions um, by force of will. Right, right. This was the most interesting uh, aspect to me in, in terms of what really convinced me when you were talking that it's overly optimistic. Um, not that it, it's what's not overly optimistic is, I think you're saying, is the idea that, you know, some of these measures could do a lot to um, moderate, to, to, to dampen down partially uh, 
address the, the, the climate crisis. But what sounded to me incredibly optimistic was this idea of um, the, the, the pump priming where you, uh, John Maynard Keynes, I think, called it the widow's cruise, or maybe that was uh, Koletsky, where, you know, you, you, you pour water out of the, the pitcher and it automatically fills back up and you keep pouring and the more you pour out, the more it fills up. This idea that it's going to pay for itself and create a boom. Okay, or actually, it's the the opposite. By by creating an economic boom, this will pay for itself because there'll be so much income, you know, that even if you don't raise tax rates, there'll be so much more tax income, taxable income to tax, and it pays for itself. Um, that to me, you know, that's that's kind of like tied to almost all of these social democratic promises that I've seen over the years and decades. So you're saying that that is a part of what they're doing. And do you see any um, evidence that, in fact, this stuff could pay for itself? Well, I don't quite have the confidence in my economic uh, chops to like make absolutist statements about whether certain you know, revenue sources are equal to spending and make economic projections. But maybe we could just actually go through how Bernie Sanders says his plan will pay for itself and see if things make sense. Yeah. The fact, I mean, it's important if he says it'll pay for itself. You, you know, this goes back to 2016 and, and Gerald, uh, I think it's Friedman, the guy who, who, who analyzed his, uh, his plans, um, uh, Sanders back then. Uh, and it was very clear to me that Friedman just did not understand the basic concept of a Keynesian multiplier. He thought, he thought that it, it was something that, that permanently raised growth. Um, and it, it's not the, the stimulus ends the moment the funding for the funding the moment the funding stops the the, the boost stops that's the way the Keynesian multiplier works and and he he didn't he didn't get that they've got this idea of of jump starting some perpetual motion machine and and just it's it's not the way anybody else understands economics but So let's just look at how Sanders says he will pay for his Green New Deal or how it will pay for itself. And we'll see if this makes sense. Yeah. So this is Bernie Sanders says his Green New Deal will pay for itself in 15 years. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, it is a 16 trillion dollar spending plan. Okay. And there are six categories of revenue sources with which the plan will pay for itself over this time period. Now, keep in mind. They're not really itemized and broken down into clear economic projections of where the figures are coming from. Um, so I assume that that exists somewhere, for, but who knows? <clears throat> the first source of revenue is taxes, fees, and litigation against the fossil fuel industry. Uh, yeah, what are the consequences of, of going after them? How does that get figured in? Well, it doesn't seem to be figured in, uh, but okay. we can probably assume that when you have like an oil shortage or a capital strike, it's a serious issue. It's a serious issue politically and it's a serious issue financially. Yeah, yeah I mean, I would just think about what happened with OPEC in the 70s. Sure. Another way the plan is going to pay for itself, uh, theoretically, is that they're going to be these regional power marketing authorities, uh, sort of like the Tennessee Valley Authority, I guess. Um, they're going to sell energy wholesale to consumers. Um, they're going to charge for that for 12 years, and after which point uh, the plan claims energy will become virtually free. How's that? I have no idea how energy becomes virtually free. I have no idea. I cannot figure that one out. I thought maybe you might know. <laughs> I mean, I assume the argument is that since we're dealing with renewable resources, that once the grid has been created, then the amount of labor uh, and other costs around energy are going to be a lot lower and so energy is quote virtually free i mean obviously when a resource is free you have to ration it some way so there will be and if you're not if it's you know free to consumers then it's going to have to be rationed some other way i mean i i don't know i would like to see what the experts would would say here in terms of what is the um the critical mass needed you know to to you get to this point where you're significantly lowering o overall energy costs is, is there any citation of, of research or yeah no there aren't very many citations in the sanders plan i'd be very curious to see where some of the numbers come from 
Some of them might be based on real calculations. Some of them might just be sort of made up assumptions. Okay, well, the next uh, revenue source which by which the plan will, quote, pay for itself is by reallocating money from the military budget. Um, the U.S. military budget right now is like almost $700 billion. So I'm not quite sure how much he wants to take and how that much of that will take him to his $16 trillion spending plan. Okay, and, 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 and what is his, what kind of trade-off does he figure in in terms of lost jobs uh, in the military and military-related industries? Does, is there any offset for that? That's a good question. Uh, I don't remember seeing that in the plan. I know that he talks a lot about uh, offset and job training programs and uh, jo- uh, uh, like you know um, unemployment programs for people in the fossil fuel industry, but I don't remember a discussion of military and military industries. You know, one would, would expect that if this were all being done in good faith, this and that, that you're going to have some realistic um, evaluation of the, 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 the offsetting, the losses of revenue elsewhere and so forth and so on. But I, I in, unless I see those kinds of numbers, I, I would not even expect that they're there anywhere. They may be, they may not be. So well, here's, here's the next one. This is the one that I can't figure out. Taxed revenue from the 20 million new jobs the government's created. Mm-hmm. So the government creates 20 million new jobs. But yeah. then the plan says, oh, this will pay for itself because we're going to tax those people's incomes now. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Am I missing something? Okay. The, the government creates jobs. And by creating jobs, it's providing income to the workers. I I assume that's what he means when he says he's creating 20 million new jobs. I mean, who else, how else are they creating it? But except for either they're hiring contractors or they're paying the workers directly. Right. But basically they would have to subsidize the contractors who then hire the people. Uh, Yeah. And and take a cut for themselves. Right. And then the government's going to tax that money. So that can't be anything. So yeah, what that, what that means is instead of paying people, a hundred dollars, you, you know, you're paying them eighty, yeah, yeah. and you're taking twenty. Yeah. You're taking, you're, you're, you're keeping, yeah. you're keeping twenty. So, so there's no pos- that that the taxing the new jobs cannot be a source of the plan paying for itself, right? There's no possible way that could work out. No. Okay. No, you're absolutely correct. Right. I thought maybe I, mean, I was crazy think, and I was think, missing just, something. Just, no, 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 but, but it's important that we take our listeners through the economic logic of, of some of this stuff because people get very confused because they don't understand mm-hmm. and each piece sounds reasonable. Um, but first of all, yes, um, just in terms of like economics 101 that everybody takes, when, when, when you, 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 you boost taxes, that's a drag on the economy. That's not a, a boost to the economy. Spending boosts the economy. Taxation mm-hmm. is, is a drag because it's a drag mm-hmm. on total spending. Okay, first of all, that, there's, there's that. But just think in terms mm-hmm. of you hire somebody for $100. Okay, so you've created $100 worth of income basically by borrowing it. You're borrowing $100 from the future and you're living $100 better off mm-hmm. right now. Okay, but then you keep 20 of it in taxes. So instead of being $100 better off right now, borrowed from the future, it's $80 right. better off right now, borrowed from the future. So it's only packing four-fifths of the punch. This is, this is not rocket science. Okay, good, because I thought either, either this doesn't make any sense or I'm missing something really important here. Um, no, no, you're not. You're right. not missing a thing. Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it's ass backwards. Excuse so, me. So there are two more ways uh, he's going to pay for the plan. Will pay for itself. There'll be a reduced need for welfare programs because of all the good-paying union jobs. Um, yeah. Okay, that's reasonable. Yeah. And then the final source of revenue is going to be taxing the rich and corporations. Uh, which I don't think actually counts as the plan paying for itself. And I've heard that critique of Sanders' plan that when he says pay for itself, he actually just means raising taxes on certain people. Um, You know, paying for itself sort of implies that there's an economic growth happening and that tax rates stay the same that you're generating extra revenue from the economic, economic expansion. 
Yeah, it's not what I would call paying for itself when, when you're, you're, you're raising taxes on somebody to, to cover the cost. That, it's not what I think of as paying for itself. Paying for itself typically means you're, you're, you're boosting output, you're boosting production, you're boosting income to such an extent that the additional tax revenue that gets generated from the additional income covers the additional costs of the program. That's what we, we generally mean by paying for itself. Um, and raising taxes on the rich and corporations, good, bad, whatever you might think of it, it's, it, it's, it's not what is typically meant by paying for itself. Yeah. All right. And so those are the six categories by which he thinks the plan will pay for itself, however he defines that. Um, and you know, again, there's no breakdown. It's not like we're going to get this much revenue from this source and this much from another source. It's not sort of itemized anyway. But this is being touted as like the most thorough Green New Deal plan out there right now from the Green yeah. New Deal people. I mean, it's sort of been touted as like, finally, someone's created the document. It's the most radical Green New Deal. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. I'm also pretty skeptical of this rosy picture of what happens when the government creates 20 million new jobs, and not just like workfare jobs, but um, skilled labor needed to build infrastructure that's uh, that is paid a, a, quote, good wage and is unionized. I mean, if you're, you have 20 million jobs being created, uh, skilled workers, you're not just pulling from the unemployed pool of laborers, you're probably drawing from people who are already employed in various building trades. So there's uh, a, an effect on the job market that is not really talked about here. Yeah, I mean, depending on the amount, and the, the, I, I get confused because sometimes they, they do this over a year, sometimes 10 years, this one is 15 years. How, how many jobs per year addition, yeah, that, additional are we talking about here? I don't think he has it broken down into jobs per year. Right. I mean, it sounds like a... a, 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 a a permanent, at least for this 15-year period, mm -hmm. so it sounds like a, throughout this 15-year period, there's 20 million additional jobs. Yeah, that's the way it sounds. Um, yeah, which is uh, some somewhere on the order of a 7% increase in total employment in, in this country. We, we don't have, by normal estimates, 
that that kind of uh, oversupply of labor in this country. So yeah, you you are talking about labor shortages, especially in with respect to some kinds of skills. Yeah. But I'm very curious as to what exactly the political and economic um, implications are of a what basically amounts to a job guarantee program. I mean, if you read the pages of uh, Jacobin magazine, the Social Democratic, you know, they're all Bernie Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, uh, there are people there writing articles about how great the Sanders Green New Deal is because it offers a job guarantee. They're more excited about that than the actual actually fighting climate change. And they you know, portray this as like the job guarantee is as like this holy grail of leftist politics that all leftists are supposed to support because, you know, once there's full employment, then it kind of kneecaps the capitalist class and the working class is emboldened. But it seems like there's this a big difference between saying a job guarantee program is important because it's like a tactical maneuver in class warfare versus saying that this job guarantee program is supposed to be a net positive thing for a capitalist economy. So I, I addressed this this issue uh, in a piece I wrote six years ago uh, that I called post-work zombie social democracy with a human face question mark uh, and it was on the new new left project website which is defunct but it's uh, it, it's in uh, it's on the, uh, the MHI website now with, with sober senses and in, as part of this this article I looked at this um, I responded to an article in Jacobin by Peter Frace F-R-A-S-E uh, and the, the root of this goes back to a, a very famous statement by Mikhail Kolecki, who was a co-founder of Keynesianism. And I want to take you through what Kolecki says, because it's shocking to, to me, but these people, the social democratic types, buy into this. Kolecki argues that under, quote, under a regime of permanent full employment, the SAC would cease to play its role as a disciplinary measure. In other words, firing people. You wouldn't be able to have that threat of firing to discipline workers. Uh, the self-assurance and class consciousness of the working class would grow. Strikes for wage increases and improvements in conditions would create political tension. Then he says, it is true that profits would be higher under a regime of full employment. Um, and even the rise in wage rates resulting from the stronger bargaining power of the workers is less likely to reduce profits than to increase prices. Okay, but, so why don't, why, why don't the, the capitalists go for it if it's going to be more profitable for them? He says, but discipline in the factories and political stability are more appreciated than profits by business leaders. Their class instinct tells them that lasting full employment is unsound from their point of view and that unemployment is an integral part of the normal capitalist system. End quote from Kolecki. Okay, I, I look at this and I'm saying, this is absolutely nuts. And okay, so, I mean, Kolecki might have had a bad day, but this has been repeated. You see it in, in, in the pages of Monthly Review. Peter Frace picks it up. Everybody endorses it as if it's a piece of wisdom when it's absolutely nuts. Okay, first of all, discipline in the factories is going to be eroded because... You, you, there's no threat of firing anymore. Strikes are going to be breaking out all over the place. And Kletsky tells us that profits are going to be higher under such conditions. How is that? Is he just mean, does he think that income, the higher income from the working class means they'll be spending more and that will create more yeah, profit? Yeah, they'll, 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 that... be, they'll, they'll be, sure, they'll, they'll be spending more. Right, so that's... That, 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 that's, that's the key to everything. Yeah. Okay, but how much, how much, what, what are things going to cost when there's no discipline left in the factories and strikes are breaking out all over the place? Right. You know, yeah. and, 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 and how can you spend on stuff that doesn't exist because it hasn't been produced because you, you, you got strikes breaking out all over the countries. Right. All over the country. Then what's even more shocking to me is Kletsky telling us that capitalists are not profit maximizers. Mm -hmm. Right. The goal of business leaders is not to maximize profits, according to him, but to maintain their class rule. It's like, okay, why are they trying to maintain their class rule? To what end? Not to maximize profit? If not to maximize, pro maximize profit, then, then, then why do they care about class rule? Because they're, they're mean sons of a bitches? I mean, it, it, none of this makes any sense when you give it a moment's thought, but it's being signed on to again and again and again. So, you know, um, if, if we were to have a boost of, of uh, in, in, in total employment in the United States of 20 million, um, I expect that the, the first part of what Kolecki is talking about would start, at least start, partially come to pass. In terms of strikes and... 
yeah, strikes, unrest. less discipline, labor unrest, yeah. but the profits being higher? No. Right. You, you, you know, you don't get profit by people spending on stuff that they actually don't buy because it doesn't exist. Yeah. Because the, the, the factories, you know, aren't producing because the workers are on strike, you know, and the, the workers getting higher wages, you know, like, isn't that going to boost prices? And if it boosts prices, that's the higher prices are just going to absorb the, the, the extra income. Um, none, none of this makes a damn bit of sense. So, OK, yeah. so, yeah, we've 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 done a good deal to 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 get at some um, problems concerning the, the realism, the achievability of mm-hmm. what they're talking about. Um, but let me go to what I think is the, the $64,000 question here. Point, the $16 trillion question. The $16 <laughs> trillion question. You've got this critique that they're not being realistic. But doesn't it run into the problem that proponents of the Green New Deal, at least a large segment of them, just don't care about whether they're being realistic. Um, you yourself wrote in your uh, 2017 essay against left economic populism, and I'm quoting, New left populism wins arguments by appealing to popular superstitions and myths and popular discontent with easy answers. It doesn't worry about the difficulty of delivering on its promises, as long as the promises win adherence. Above all else, this is what makes it populism. It is also the trait it has most in common with Trumpism. Okay, so that's your view, and I would basically share it. But given that that's your view, okay, their aim is seems to be to win adherence rather than propose solutions to social problems that can be realistically achieved. So if realistic solutions to problems is not the goal of what they're doing, if the real goal is to win adherence, why are you criticizing the lack of realism? Aren't you just missing the point? <laughs> I think I'm, maybe I am missing the point. Okay. Yeah. yeah well, I, I mean, well, you, you have to respond yeah, somehow. Sorry, yeah. You have to respond yeah. somehow. And, and, and the way they would say it is, look, we have to deal with, you know, not just science. We have to deal with, with politics here. Yeah. And we're, we're dealing with politics, and the, the, the main thing that we need is, you know, to, to build the left. And we're rallying people around the left with aspirational claims. Uh, and, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't run for president by telling people what we can't achieve and, and what you're not going to do. The Elizabeth right, the Warren Elizabeth line that everybody liked. Yeah. Okay, so we're doing it the right way. How would you respond to that? Just to give another example, in addition to that Elizabeth Warren quote, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders' Green New Deal proposal very much bears the mark of a campaign document rather than a somber policy proposal. Um, it's meant to stand out and make headlines and be flashy and seem like the most radical because it has the biggest price tag and the most pages. Um, and even though it's lacking in a lot of details like we've talked about and, and begs a lot of questions. But in order to address your you know question of maybe I just don't get the point, because the point is to win adherence, I think that maybe we need to be talking about what the point is and what the goal is. Is the goal just to attract people to a to attract constituents to your party? Or is the goal to um, actually solve the climate problem? We have so little time left to deal with this crisis, and the shit is about to get really real, really fast. And we probably can't even really predict how bad things are going to be. Um, we're only going to be able to deal with this in a positive, humanistic way that's good for the society rather than you know authoritarian ways of dealing with the problem. We're only going to be able to do that if we're really talking concretely and honestly about the stakes and um, the you know possible scenarios rather than being deceitful about the actual claims and promises that are being made. Yeah, I, I think that that's, personally, I think that that's a very effective uh, response is you can play your, your, your games of, you know, uh, trying to win political power, but the sustainability of, of human life and, and other life uh, on, on this planet is, is hanging in the balance and we got real problems to, to deal with and, um, you know, a- empty promises and false promises don't do it. We, we, we've got to get real. That, that to me, is very effective. Um, 
and like what and when like when do they plan to get real it's like okay then once we get into power then we're actually gonna take a sober look at what our actual plan is for fighting climate change once we get into power and we're gonna like make a new plan uh that's different than the one we've been talking about for the past two years i mean it just doesn't doesn't make any sense right well that's that's the way the, this this the scam has been operating for for decades upon decades whether we're talking about climate change or whether we're talking about socialism or whatever put us in power and then when we have the power we can solve everything and we will yeah just trust us uh it, it, yeah just trust, just trust us, us. It, it all it all work it all work out and it's really ultimately based on some idea of we have good intentions and we're enlightened um and the people who are now in power they're the problem they're they've got bad intentions and 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 they're unenlightened um a lot of people see through this including including liberals a few days ago ezra klein had a um an article on vox you know his, his website where he was uh, criticizing this opposition to neoliberalism on these very grounds where it was people were really saying you know what's wrong with the neoliberals is they're they're, they're bad intended they've got bad intentions and they're unenlightened and put us in power and everything will be fine you know it's, it's nothing to do with the, the political constraints or you know the nature of the, the economy um that, that's the problem it's the particular people in power put us in power and and everything will be hunky-dory that seems to be the real uh to myself to 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 Ezra Klein and to others that that seems to be what the bottom line is but you know so yeah what you're saying in terms of getting real and them never doing it that that's very convincing to me but in terms of like talking to to those people i don't think that like political opportunists and left first types economic populists i don't think they're going to be persuaded by arguments that are grounded in you know here's what we have to do to save humanity i don't think they're going to be uh, persuaded by anything you know that, that's coming from a revolutionary marxist humanist perspective rather than a seeking power and gaining power perspective no matter how cogent and correct the arguments are so it's interesting to me that you know in your presentations you also make an argument that they might care to listen to more carefully an argument that addresses their self-interest uh it seems to me that you suggest that they by lacking concern for the realism of what they propose that that might come back and bite them might come to haunt them down the road the fact that they're not concerned with the realism is that what you're saying uh and if so how might it come back to haunt them and why i mean if bernie sanders is elected president and and lives long enough and has the political capital to um put his green new deal into fruition in addition to his all his other big social democratic spending plans and if there are negative economic consequences of those plans inflation um destabilization of labor markets what have you uh and the people could easily turn against the social democrats and be disillusioned with their politics especially in a situation in which you know we only have a few years left to turn this climate crisis around and we've been promised that the social democrats can pull it off i mean those people are going to be up against the wall if they fail so so you're, you're going back to the point that you've made is um if they gain adherence on the basis of the promises they make somewhere down the road they're going to have to make good on those promises and if they don't people are going to go in the other direction become disenchanted and that is not only not good for them right in the end but it's, it's very dangerous because people become receptive to uh trumpism uh they become receptive to fortress usa you know uh keeping out uh, environmental refugees and, and and all the rest it, it, it could be it could be much worse than it is now yeah i mean if you're going to measure the success of the green new deal on its ability to fight climate change that's great but if you're going to measure its its success on its ability to create uh you know paradise on earth within the confines of a capitalist society you're really setting up the environmental movement for failure and there could be all sorts of really negative social consequences that arise because of that. Again, going back to your presentations, you say in them, and I'm quoting, uh, there are many on the left and within the environmental movement who think that it is more important to try to woo Trump voters with populist economic proposals rather than fight Trump and Trumpism head on. 
Um, can you give any examples of, of people like this, let's say, within the environmental movement? Sure. Well, in one of my presentations on the topic, I brought up a passage from a policy document by this group called Data for Progress, which put out their pitch for a Green New Deal a year or two ago. And in this section, they're talking about um, polling data, where they were polling people about their opinions about some sort of green job guarantee program. And they say that when they framed their questions around this uh, green job guarantee, it, quote, elicited far less opposition from Donald Trump voters. 35% of Trump voters supported the green job guarantee and 36% opposed, blah, 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 blah. And they're going to say, this indicates a green job guarantee can help progressives draw support from typically unsupportive voters, end quote. Um, you know, by which this all basically means they think that they can win Trump supporters by bribing them with jobs. And like I said earlier, I think this just represents the most naive reading of our contemporary political situation. There just aren't swing voters who are going to leave the Trumpite base uh, because of economic populist projects presented by the left. And it's really dangerous to frame our politics in terms of trying to appeal to this authoritarian, nativist, misogynistic base. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you. I mean, one thing that we have to grapple with, um, and, you know, I've been tracking it kind of continually since he's been in office, is his approval rating. And it's never been high, but it never really goes down no matter what he does. You know, uh, separating the kids from their parents, throwing, uh, you know, uh, paper towels at, at Puerto Ricans, uh, Muslim ban, uh, you know, saying, I don't know, you know, I, I believe Putin... I I mean, no matter what it is, his supporters are down with that, and it's because he's the white nationalist in chief, and 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 that's what they're they're going for. I mean, really, the the, the data all seem to indicate that everything you know in 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 the air, all the anecdotal evidence seems to point in that direction. And I mean, I I, I agree with you that that just trying to pull away people who are attracted to white nationalism away from Trump on the basis of, 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 of some gimmicky marketing strategy for your social democracy it's not it's, it's not it's not not going to work what, what it, green framing or whatever that they Sean McElwee and, and Data for progress call it um but but how 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 significant do you think this is in terms of uh, the motivation behind the calls for a green New Deal and 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 people signing on to a green new deal how how big of an issue is it that uh, gee we have to we have to try to relate to trump's base and how much is actually just oh here's how we have to package our, package our social democracy and how much of it is actual concern for uh, solving the climate crisis yeah there might be equal parts of each i mean it's hard to say you, you, obviously right after trump's victory you saw all this ridiculous pandering to the mythic white working class amongst the left and this um, oh yeah all this oh, yeah. soul searching and hand wringing and now we have to go read like hillbilly elegy and like figure out how people think and the rust we have belt. to go to that diner in iowa yeah, we have to go back to the diner we have to go <laughs> yeah we have to keep hanging out there until we figure out like how they think over there and uh figure out how to appeal to their interests and needs so uh, and you're hearing that from everywhere over the place and and that the democrats have to somehow um abandon neoliberalism and then have this uh kitchen table economics populist um politics that's going to win part of that base back i think that's definitely part of the thinking it's hard to know how much that affects the whole picture because i think there's also just um an opening you know the social democrats had an opening in the political space made by the great, you know, sort of the political, ideological fallout of the Great Recession, by the Sanders campaign, by social media, by various factors. And they had an opening and they just ran with it. Um, and this is just how social Democrats think about things. Everything has to be about this sort of economic populist package. Um, right. So it's part of it's like just reflexive or instinctive thinking uh, in addition to this this sort of fetishism of white working class voters.
That is all the time we have in this episode of Radio Free Humanity. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to leave comments. We love to hear comments and discussion from our listeners. You can also leave a donation for the organization on that page as well. 